Hello, Renoites listeners, and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. My name is Connor McQuibby. I'm your host, as always. Thank you so much for joining me this week. I'm super excited. This week's guest on the podcast is Mayor Sheevy, the mayor of Reno, Nevada. I've been doing this podcast for a little bit over a year now, and it's been really fantastic to have so many guests on the show that are doing important things in town. I've talked to other local elected officials, business leaders, heads of nonprofits, local business owners, arts organizations, a little bit of everyone. That is the goal of this show, is that hopefully I'm having interesting conversations with people from a variety of different fields and different backgrounds with the commonality that they're all doing something that matters for the city of Reno. So it only makes sense that I would want to talk to the person who is leading our city right now, our mayor for the last two terms, Mayor Sheevy. Very, very great to have her on the show. An hour flew by, but we talked about as much as we possibly could, some current issues affecting the city of Reno. It's election season. We talked about the upcoming campaign a little bit. And it was just really great to have her on the show. I've met Mayor Sheevy once or twice before very briefly, but this was the first time I've been able to actually have a full conversation with her. And it was really great. I hope that you enjoy it as well. Thank you so much for tuning in. Before we get to the interview with Mayor Sheevy, as you know, I host trivia at several local venues here in town. If you would like to come see me in person, you can do that. I host at the Sierra Tap House on Tuesdays and at the Brewer's Cabinet Production Facility on Thursdays for DJ Trivia Nevada. That's just two of our many, many venues in town. You can find all of the venues at djtrivianevada.com. There's probably one in your neighborhood. It's free to play. It's a lot of fun. The games all start pretty early. Sign-ups at 7. Games start at 7.30. We're done by 9, so it's a great family activity at most of our venues as well. Check it out. That's djtrivianevada.com or on social media on Facebook or Instagram at djtrivianevada. This week's episode is also brought to you by This Is Reno. I talk a lot about local news on this show. I don't really consider myself much of a journalist. I'm more of just a, I don't know, conversationalist. I like to talk to people and learn things, but I'm not necessarily a reporter. But it's important that we have thorough local reporting, and that is what This Is Reno does, covering a lot of the local news that you might not get from the television news or the local newspaper. I really appreciate the work they do. Follow them at This Is Reno. That's thisisreno.com. You can also sign up for their newsletter. That's usually how I get the news comes in my email every day. That's thisisreno.com. If you'd like to help support the show financially, you can also sign up on Patreon. I have a Patreon account. It's patreon.com slash renoites. You can sign up for even just a couple bucks a month to help make the show financially sustainable. Thank you so much to my current patrons, Joaquin, Rachel, Emily, Giovanni, Haley, David, John, Vicky, Ben, all of you. Thank you so much for contributing a little bit of money to help make sure this podcast can continue to exist. Again, if you want to join the ranks of my financial supporters on Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com slash renoites. As always, if you have any suggestions for guests or episodes, ideas, things that I should talk about on the show, I really want to make sure that I'm having on the type of guests that you want to hear and covering the topics that are important to the people of Reno. I really value listener feedback, so reach out anytime. You can find me on social media at Renoites on Facebook and Instagram, or just shoot me an email. My email address is Connor, C-O-N-O-R, at Renoites.com. And now this week's guest, Reno Mayor Hillary Sheevy. Mayor Hillary Sheevy, thank you so much for coming on Renoites. I'm really excited to have you on the show. I've been doing this podcast for a little bit over a year, and you've obviously been kind of like at the top of my list to do a podcast about Reno. I want to talk to the mayor of Reno. So thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you so much for having me, Connor. It's great to be here and um, great to see you. I know everyone else can't see us, but it's nice that I get to see you. So um, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's fun. I do like that it this is an audio podcast, but I record it generally. This is like behind the scenes for listeners. I record remotely most of the time using a platform called Zencaster that's a lot like a Zoom meeting. So it's nice to be able to have a meeting where I'm you know, seeing who I'm talking to because I think it really does help the conversation feel a little bit more natural and more normal than just doing like a totally phone call agree. kind of thing. Because I also think we're expressive, right? Mm -hmm. and you you kind of sort of don't get to see that, but I think it's important for communication. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Body language is a huge part of the way that we communicate. And I think so that true. even though I'm doing an audio program, being able to see who I'm talking to, I hope comes across a little bit in the audio. Yes. 
Yes. I, I prefer it because I'm very expressive. I make a lot of different faces. <laughs> yeah, I, I gesture a lot. I think a lot of it is, is lost on the, the podcast, but like I gesture and it's uh, it's a big part of how we communicate. So I'm glad that that's a part so of this true. conversation. Yeah, it's very true. And it's funny because that's what gets lost in text message. Mm-hmm. You can see how when someone texts you something and, you, and it's really not supposed to be perceived that way, but it is. Mm-hmm. And so it is. It's funny how communication sort of does that. And yeah. I think you're right. It's it's good to see each other and be expressive and understand. And that's the other thing about audio is you can hear the inflection in someone's voice, right? Mm-hmm. And so you can kind of follow the story or the reader, whatever that looks like. But I think it's important. Yeah. No, I think I'm I'm a big reader and I like text. Um, I use text like text messages to communicate with people a lot. I think that's just the way of the world. Mm-hmm. But I do think that there is something really... Um, important in the the voice, the inflection, the way that we talk. And that's one of the reasons I really like the podcast format is these are conversations that people can pick up more from than just an article or a text or a tweet totally or whatever. Um, there's something kind of, it's hard to describe, but something underneath just the words when you get to actually hear a conversation happen. Yeah, I totally agree with you. That's So if constituents reach out, I always like, hey, can I have your phone number? Because I want to speak to them in person. I know going back and forth through email, honestly, it's um, challenging. And Mm -hmm. I don't think that we can communicate to our best ability. And also social media too. You'll notice Mm -hmm. how things get construed on social media. So I try really hard not to communicate through social media at all. Matter of fact, I I barely use it. I use Twitter because I know I'm not going to get in that much trouble in 180 characters, (laughs) (laughs) you know. (laughs) So I like Twitter, but I I actually got off Facebook a a while ago and my Instagram is connected to my Facebook. So I get a little bit of Facebook, but honestly, it was probably one of the best things that I've done for my mental health is just get off Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm I'm so jealous because I've been I've struggled to quit social media many times and I have taken breaks from it. But one of the things that I'm finding, especially with this podcast project, is I feel like I have to be yes. promoting. You know, you have to be on social mm-hmm. media to feel like you're plugged in or to feel like you yes. are, um, you know, getting your message out there. So yes. that's interesting that as uh, as the mayor that yeah. you've had that ability to step away from social media and still mm-hmm. communicate with people. Because I know that, you know, Devin Reese is on the city council and he's very much very responsive on on social media. So it's nice to have that access to our elected officials. Absolutely. But I understand the need to step away. I love it. I wish I could be. I found that it just started to consume so much of my time. And I Mm -hmm. thought, I want to be out there doing the work. And instead, you know, sometimes I think if people are on social media too much, you're kind of like, uh, are they working right? Mm -hmm. Like, but it's a balance. And I think you're right. It's nice to be accessible, but at the same time, it's not the best form of communication for me personally. Mm -hmm. Some people do it really well. I think just because my schedule is so hectic that I can't really sit down and put the time into it on top of everything else. So I'm really one of those communicators. I like to be in person. I like to at least be on the phone. Like I Mm -hmm. don't, I don't love text and I don't love email. And I find for me that um, it's just much better flow, I think. And especially, you know, a lot of the emails too that I get are a lot of frustration, right? And then there's, Mm -hmm. you know, some wonderful emails I get, but especially in in those frustrated emails, I really notice the difference whenever we're on the phone or I'm always saying, hey, come to my office. Mm -hmm. And then it's a very different conversation, which I like. I think people sort of let down their barriers and they also see you as a person instead of just sort of this figure of mayor. And that mm-hmm. makes a huge difference. The other thing that I have, and I think you'll laugh um, in my office is I have a ping pong table. And before people enter my office, I like to play a game of ping pong. And then <laughs> it really kind of, you know, lightens sort of that heavy feeling that someone might have before they walk in if they're, you know, unhappy or frustrated or whatever that looks like. But it's just a nice icebreaker. And, you know, and then I also say on Fridays, we play beer pong, but no one knows that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's fun. Are you good? Are you good at ping pong? (laughs) Um, Sometimes, sometimes I'm really, really good. But I like to play Carl Hall. He's our city attorney and he's really good. So Mm. when I play him, I kind of up my game. 
But if I'm playing someone that's not very good, then I'm really bad. So, <laughs> right. I mean, you probably have to be thoughtful about not just like destroying yeah. a constituent when they're coming in to say hi right. and you whoop them at right. ping pong. That's not a great way to start that <laughs> dynamic, probably. Right. Exactly. Try. I try not to do that. <laughs> yeah. But if I'm, you know, feeling aggressive, then I'm like, okay, let's just go. <laughs> I'm right. just competitive. I I like to win, um, mm-hmm. and in sports, so it's probably yeah one of those things that I probably need to watch. <laughs> (laughs) Right. So I wanted to talk to you basically about a few things about being mayor and kind of the impact of local politics and then some of the issues that are going on in Reno. And I also want to ask you about it's an election year. There's right in the middle of election season, too. So I've got some questions about that. But I'd like to start just with some general stuff about being the mayor and local politics. So you've done two full terms as our mayor or almost two terms now. And I wonder how you got involved in politics or why you thought that was a good way to make a change in Reno. You're from Reno and you obviously wanted to, you know, have an impact on the city. What was it about local politics that you thought was the way to do that? And Mm -hmm. is it what you expected? Um, Kind of give us a little recap of what it's been like being mayor for the last couple of terms. Right. That's such a good question. I would say this, it's still hard to believe um, that I'm the mayor. It it really is. I think, you know, some days I'm like, wow, I just, I don't know. It's, it's interesting because I obviously I was born and raised here and you'll laugh at this. When I was growing up, people would say, where are you from? And I'd say Lake Tahoe, (laughs) Reno, you know, people didn't really want to say that they were from Reno at the time. And as you know, we've kind of been the brunt of lots of jokes, um, across Mm -hmm. the country, right? Those kinds of things. One thing is we know anyone that's been born and raised here knows that Reno is a really special place, but also we have this incredible backyard playground that is very unique, very special. So we have all these incredible attributes that I felt like people didn't really know about or really understand what it's like to be from Reno. And anyway, growing up here, I kind of always envisioned a little bit different city because we've always been predominantly gaming. And especially Mm -hmm. in the downturn in the recession, 2008, we were so predominantly gaming that was really hard on us. And that's why we were uh, number one in the country along with Florida in foreclosures and unemployment. And that was another thing that I kind of looked at and said, you know, we really need to have a diversified economy if we're going to be able to sustain these types of downturns. And we Mm -hmm. were so hard hit, right? And then I would say the other thing is I've always been kind of an activist. I've uh, been a big activist for organ donation. My sister Amanda donated her kidney to me, so I was super fortunate. So I kind of got really involved in activism through that sort of channel. And then whenever I went to open my business, I went to the city and I was actually expanding and the city wanted to charge me about $5,000 to move my sign two feet. And I just thought, wow, that seems outrageous. And then kind of at the same time, there were four of us and we were starting to work on the Midtown District and what that would look like. And they said, well, Hillary, you're going to be the one that's going to go to city council meetings and advocate for streetlights and sidewalks and those kinds of things. And so really, it was my experience through both of those things that I was like, wow, this like system is really broken because I went to city council and I just I didn't feel like we were heard at all. And I think they didn't take us seriously that we were going to create this incredible district and really be such a vibrant place in our city. I think they just thought, oh, that'll just sort of come and go. Mm -hmm. So it was really through my experience with, you know, advocating for a small business and then this district for other entrepreneurs and artists and things like that. And it was really interesting sort of how Midtown evolved in the sense that it was in a recession and it really allowed us to grow Midtown Mm-hmm. Um, quite honestly, and grow businesses because we started to work with landlords that, you know, they had not leased out those buildings in years. And if you remember, it was pretty seedy part of town too. Mm-hmm. And so that really allowed us the ability to say, hey, if we put a small business in here, or an entrepreneur or an artist, would you be willing to share in sort of the profit shares? And so that's kind of how Midtown sort of, you know, started 
to kind of grow and evolve. And, and now look at it today. It's crazy. Cause I look at it and 14 years later here, we finally have our sidewalks and we <laughs> have, we have our lights, but, um, that's kind of how I ended up getting involved in politics and seeing a broken system, especially for small businesses, because I just kind of thought, you know, I'm not going to complain about it. I'm going to change it. And that's mm-hmm. whenever I decided to run for office. It's been really, really wonderful. Also, it's been incredibly stressful, especially the last couple of years. Oh, I can't I imagine. Think, right. Every mayor in the country will probably tell you that. But that's really how I got involved. It was out of a passion for people and the place in which we live. But I also experienced it firsthand, um, sort of the red tape that we sort of encounter on the governmental side. And not to mention, I think that really your community needs to shape your city. And that's what we were doing in Midtown. It was really a community effort. It had nothing to do with the city. And Mm -hmm. then I I always kind of thought, why aren't we embracing things like Burning Man or our university and bringing it right down into our city? That was something that we never explored. It was always kind of like kept, you know, off to the side and don't talk about it. And I really thought we had massive assets there to really play upon and expand upon, you know, Reno and sort of this arts and culture and vibrancy and technology and innovation. And so that's Mm kind of how it all evolved. Now, here I am today. (laughs) How do you, uh, how do you prioritize those things? Because I know that when you were, before you were on city council, before you were mayor, you had your own particular interests or focus on businesses and midtown. And then now as mayor, I think your job probably is to listen to all of the different people that have their own ideas about what we should be doing and what neighborhoods and how we should grow. So how do you prioritize or decide the, the focuses, right? You have your own interests, but obviously you have a Mm -hmm. lot of different constituents with competing, like clearly, clearly competing interests. You will have, I'm sure at public comment, one person advocating for one development and then someone coming up and speaking out strongly against it. Like, how do you, how do you kind of pick and choose Mm-hmm. what the priorities are uh, right. for the city? It's such a good question because it is, it's so hard because you have a lot of different things coming at you all the time, right? Whether it's, let's say, horses or bicycling, infrastructure, bees. Like I'm just kind of thinking of this week, you know, we did a bee initiative, right? Certainly affordable housing. That is really something that obviously today is so challenging, right? But it's a lot of different views and it's a lot of different ideas and it's a lot of different issues. You're, You're exactly right. It is a lot. So you are juggling a lot and sometimes you just don't have enough time in the day to focus on, you know, the one thing that is the most important. So you do try to prioritize and it changes too. I gotta tell you, 10 years ago when I was on the city council, the big issue at the time, um, and I don't know if you were kind of following politics at that time, but uh, were parking meters. And then, I don't know if you remember, but the city installed these parking meters that were too Mm -hmm. tall. And I'm a really short person. (laughs) And I literally had to ask Oscar Delgado, can I get on your back and put my money in this meter? (laughs) I mean, it was like 10 years ago that like that was, you know, a big issue. So it's just funny how everything really evolves. And now I would say it's even more complex and even a little bit more difficult because Reno is now what they call a medium-sized city. Mm. And that adds a whole other level of challenges, right? Because we need to provide service. Um, And that's really important to provide a great quality of life is providing these city services that are so needed, but so important, right? I always say a safe city is a prosperous city. And then Nevada is really challenging, as you know, in the way that our tax structure works. And so it's really hard on local governments. Um, I feel like a lot of ways that we're always robbing Peter to pay Paul and moving this money over here because of the depreciation factor when it comes to the way that our tax structure is set up in the state of Nevada. We're the only state that has this sort of depreciation and the tax structure. I know every legislative session that someone brings it up and God bless Julia Ratty. She's amazing, you know, big advocate and she's tried really hard, but you know, that always comes back to local governments makes it really, really challenging. And so, you know, like I said, sort of 
these issues really evolve. And in six months, it could be another issue. In two years, it might be another issue. It it sort of changes as times change. And obviously, Mm -hmm. I think the pandemic sort of sped up the process into this remote work for people and also people trying to figure out where do I want to live? Where Mm -hmm. do I want this great quality of life? Right. And a lot of people are talking about places like Reno and Austin, Texas and Boise, Idaho. And so we're kind of what they call this breakout city, which is really interesting because that's put a whole other sort of stress and strain on our infrastructure, our housing market, you know, our public safety, those kinds of things. So yes, now Mm -hmm. more than ever, there's a lot of challenges and it can be really hard to sort of balance, you know, what comes first whenever you have so many things coming at you. So I always start with the top three priorities for me. Like right now it's absolutely affordable housing, it's mental health, and it's public safety. Those are my top three. And then they kind of go, you know, down from there. But it also gets challenging because someone might read a story about, let's say, some art project that we're putting in the city. And then they think that that's your top priority because it gets the headline. Mm. When really it's not, it's not, you know, your number one top priority. But you have to provide all these things in order to have a great quality of life and certainly have this breakout city that people want to live and work and play in. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with the disconnect between the priorities that you have and kind of the perception of the city or of you or your office? Because it sounds like, of course, you have a lot of things to deal with. We have, I think, a pretty robust local media. I don't consider myself necessarily a journalist, but I do talk to a lot of people and I follow what's going on kind of in the local news. And I imagine it is really difficult to you know, to let people know what your actual priorities are. People will talk about you much more than they will talk to you being a local public figure. So how do you, how do you deal with that? How do you manage the communications? I know that I've been really impressed by the city's social media. I know that you have someone new on staff Mm -hmm. doing social media, which has been really fun. And like AJ, yeah, some more personality and also I think more direct communication with the people in an actual like human voice that matters a lot. Uh, yes. But just in general, how do you yeah. how do you feel about the way the city communicates with people and what can you do to make it a little more, I guess, healthy mm-hmm. and honest and straightforward yeah. and, and, and get people on the same page? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And thanks for recognizing AJ, um, because I what I really wanted to push for when it came to our social media at the city, even though it might be a little bit not what people are used to seeing out of a government channel, right? I wanted people to sort of like wake up and say, oh, wow, okay, that's coming out of, you know, a local government, which you typically wouldn't see his sort of banter and his engagement. And I will tell you this, some people don't like it, but other people it's resonating with. And even if we're getting you to say, oh, that's the city of Reno's Twitter or whatever that looks like, I think that we're doing a better job in getting sort of recognized and saying, hey, we're here and we're awake and let's all, you know, start in the conversation, right? I do think there are times that it's more challenging. I would like to see um, more of a text platform. One of the things I was noticing out of another city was called text to tow. And it's actually like if you're getting ready to be towed, that the city will text you. So Mm. those kinds of things, right? Like I think everything now is so mobile that I really feel like, or hey, what about just, hey, wanted to remind you, your trash needs to be out tomorrow by 8 a.m., right? I mean, how many of us have missed our trash days, (laughs) right? (laughs) I haven't in a while, but I almost did last week. And so just those kinds of things that we can provide a much better service, but also a much more I think, community-oriented message, right? So I think that's important. And then I do think you're right. People will just read headlines, and then they don't really understand behind it why maybe the city did something a certain way or why you know we voted on something. Um, like recently, we just had a group home come into a neighborhood, and that was really interesting because I've never seen that before since I've been elected, that they just automatically uh, were granted the permits because it's sort of a mandate at the state and federal level. And so that was a little interesting because it came be- it hasn't even come before council. That's, I think, another issue that how do you communicate with your 
community whenever something is happening to them. And it could be very startling. And the council, Mm -hmm. I did not have any idea that that was happening or that was the process. And I just thought, how, how do you get permitted to do something like that? And so that is sort of frustrating whenever, you know, there's that kind of disconnect. Mm. And so I'd like to see better communication channels in, in that retrospect. But I think we're always working on better ways to communicate. And I like to be accessible. I, I actually invite a lot of people to my office that reach out and say, you know, I'm frustrated with this. And I say, well, let's sit down. Right. Um, I think that that's important that they see you as human and also as part as the, of the community. And especially in local government, we're mm. not at the state. We're not at the federal level. We live right here in the community for a reason and choose to, because I think it's really easy to sort of do that out of sight, out of mind you know, when it comes to politics. And that's not who we are as local government, certainly not who I am. I live here because I want to, you know, I love Reno, obviously, but I love my community. I love the people that live here. And even if we don't agree, I think there are times we can all agree that ice cream tastes good, right? (laughs) Um, We can agree on something, but it's also really important that they also know that you're human and that you care and that they're heard. I think being heard is probably number one when it comes to the importance of understanding what someone's issues might be or their challenges. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think the humanization thing is a, a big important factor in the way that we relate to people who are living and working and making decisions in our city. I know that we've had a very divisive political atmosphere and it's yeah. only getting worse all the time. And I think that one yeah. of the the worries I have is that the more we kind of dehumanize and pretend that our maybe political opponents or people, even not opponents, people we don't agree with on one or two things, that right. all of a sudden uh, we paint them as like awful in so many ways. I just think it's not really fair and it's not, it's not realistic into the way that people actually are. I think we all have a lot more in common and we agree on a lot more than we disagree on. So uh, I'm glad to hear that. That's a thing that's important to you is, you know, connecting with people on a more human level. I think that's, that's vital for someone, especially in such a prominent role. Well, and I think you're, you're right. It's unrealistic to think that you're going to agree with people all the time. I mean, look at a, I mean, I'm sure you have really good friends that you disagree with on certain things, but they're still your friends. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, we all probably listen to different music or like different foods or things like that. I mean, and not to mention when it comes to politics, there's a lot of people that I support. Do I agree with their policy on everything? Uh, no, not at all. Right. But there are certain things that I do agree with them on. I mean, one of the reasons I am truly a nonpartisan, Sometimes just I don't identify with either party. And I also have a hard time with supporting bad policy because your party tells you to, Hmm. right? But that doesn't mean that I don't support a candidate. I always say, you know, I really am a supporter of people and not parties. And usually on my ballot, I kind of have both. I have some Democrats and Republicans. And I think to your point, you're not going to agree with everything that they do or say, but I do think... Uh, you have to kind of find where you can have that common ground and understand that um, it's not always going to be perfect, right? Nor do I think we want it to be. I mean, that's what we're so fortunate about our country is that we we get these freedoms and and so we have the ability to think differently, to look different. And I think that that's important. And we lose sight of the fact that if someone else disagrees with us, then all of a sudden it's, we don't like you. And I, I just don't think that that's how people really work. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's talk about some stuff that's going on in Reno right now. So there's, I know a new public safety building that is been long in the works, right? This Mm. idea of moving our police into a new facility and doing some construction. Can you talk a little bit about projects like that? I know there's the Moana pool is another one. Uh, Just how things like that come together. Cause I think there's this idea that things just happen, but I know it's (laughs) a lot of work to make big, expensive projects come together. So can you just talk briefly about how projects like that come Mm -hmm. to be and the, the, all the moving parts that are um, involved? Yeah. I think that's a great question because they're really complex. And I do think to your point, a lot of people see it on the agenda and think it just pops up, but actually it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of planning. It takes like, you know, so many hours of trying to figure out how do you fund it? Why is it the priority? It's been 
really challenging, I think, in Reno, because when I got into office, we were $600 million in debt. And I think this council has done a really good job of paying down debt. But at the same time, we have to continue to provide a service, right? And one of the things, especially with the the police station, is that if you go to our current police station, it is atrocious. It is really unsafe. It's got mold. It's really, really bad. And it's very tiny. So like you couldn't even come in there and file a police report with more than four people. And so it has to be you know, a center that really makes sense, but also changing into a community policing center. So having like after school programs for kids that when they go home, mom and dad are not there, right? Those kinds of things, but also making it an environment. If you have a victim of a crime or sexual assault or something like that, you have to have an area where they can feel comfortable and safe. And that's not what our police station represents. And we've been trying for I think it's been, gosh, two or three decades now trying to get a police station and trying to fund it. And so it just happened to be that we got some grants and then looked at different ways in which we could fund from the general fund because we've been really diligent about being nimble and trying to save wherever we could to build this station. The other thing that I would like to see is sort of small community policing centers in neighborhoods so that we get to know our community and our police officers and knowing them by first name and not looking at them like they're on the other side, but more so that they're part of our neighborhood and mm-hmm. our neighbors. And so, and I think as we're growing as a city, we need to implement those kinds of initiatives. And so that's another area in which I'm working on. But then, you know, you talk about the Moana pool. And again, it's been decades since we've put a pool in place. Well, at least a good decade. But you saw Moana was really sort of getting very dilapidated and this new Moana pool will be pretty incredible and just also the sustainability efforts behind it, I think are pretty impressive, but it takes a lot of planning and it it actually, you know, it also takes a lot of, a lot of community support and a lot of these like local philanthropies that step forward and say, Hey, we want to do a match and those kinds of layers, right? So they're, they're pretty complex. And then we go after lots of grants and then we try to look at, you know, specific funding areas um, because a lot of that can be really challenging. But those are all really important projects because they add to the quality of life. And I definitely mm-hmm. think certainly health and athletics, those kinds of things that we need to continue to provide to keep people healthy. And I think it's always really important. I always say this, we need to look at the proactive approach instead of reactive. And I think government always is doing the reactive and these kinds of things are the proactive approach. So, uh, you know, those are, those are pretty easy to support. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You said one of your big priorities is affordable housing. And Reno is not the only city. So I don't want to pretend that Reno is the only city that's dealing with a massive influx of new residents and um, and difficulty in providing enough housing. So the prices all go up. It's most cities. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's something that is, I think, top of mind for a lot of people Mm -hmm. in Reno and something that there is not an easy answer for. Building is incredibly expensive. My understanding is that the ability to make affordable housing a profitable venture is really, really hard to do. And the the cities don't make it easy. The governments don't make it easy. The economics of it don't make it easy. Right. There are probably a lot of people who want to say like, hey, just, you know, just build everything and make it affordable. That's the solution, which just unfortunately does not work in a capitalist housing economy. So what have you seen from other cities and what do you think Reno can or should be doing to address affordable housing and workforce housing and uh, housing that's accessible to the people who live here? Right. I think, first of all, great question. And you're right. It's almost every city, every mayor that I talk to experiencing the same type of challenges, right? Mm -hmm. And I started talking about this. I started having town halls about affordable housing in 2018. I could kind of see where we were going, right? And then the pandemic really sped things up um, for so many reasons, like we talked about remote work and and people saying, you know, I think realizing life is short. Where do I want to live? And prioritizing things differently. And now, you know, there's an abundance of jobs open, right? So people can run and um, take other jobs, right? So... 
I would say this. So we started talking about it in 2018, and then I really looked at um, several initiatives right before the pandemic. We did the 1,000 homes in 120 days. And a lot of people were like, oh, but that's not for affordable housing. We had a couple of affordable housing projects come in under that. And the reason we did that was so that we could get shovels in the ground. To your point, it's complex. It takes a long time to get a project off the ground. And it takes a lot of money and a lot of resources. And that's something the city doesn't do. They don't build housing. That would be on like the Reno Housing Authority side. So if you're going to do it on the city side, it really takes private and public partnerships to do those because it's developers that build those, not governments. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I keep trying to tell people is that Economics 101 tells us we need housing of all types. If we truly, truly want to make a difference in sort of that, you know, I call it the rubber band effect that it's so stretched, right? And Economics 101 tells us we need housing of all types. And why is that? Because if we only build affordable housing, the people that can afford to live in housing will live in that affordable housing because landlords then get to have the option to pick and choose who they can rent to and and how much they can rent for. Anytime even a market rate project comes in or even a high scale project comes in, that does help the housing market and the stress and strain of that because you're putting more product into the market, which is supply and demand. Again, supply and demand is economics 101. And so you can't just build all affordable housing. So you have to remember housing of all types does help the market. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it it does get complex because you want to continue to build affordable housing. You want to continue to build workforce housing. I think workforce housing is so important. And the reason why is because people that are working usually never would qualify for a subsidy and they would never qualify for a mortgage. And remember, those people are showing up for us every single day. And most of those people are like our housekeepers, maybe our parking attendants. And uh, most of the people, you know, that we see right now that it's really affecting is um, sort of in that casino industry, but, you know, it's the service industry. We -hmm. see that a lot because the wages just don't pay enough for housing. And so you think about how difficult. So workforce housing is something that's really important to me. And we're now starting to have conversations with casinos and with some of our largest employers about talking about, hey, what about, you know, bringing in some housing and how can the city partner with you on that? And the reason why that's so important is think about it. If you received housing from your employer, the sustainability of that job would probably be so much longer, right? And also, as you know, now more than ever, companies are trying to figure out how do we sustain this workforce? Mm-hmm. Well, one, one great way is obviously providing housing that is affordable so that you're both sort of sharing in that interest. And I think the city on that side could look at programs, and that's what we're starting to talk about now with some of these other projects that we're identifying is, would that be a great partnership with, let's say, a casino or a healthcare provider or something like that so that you can provide housing? And the big issue for me is, I think it's important for people to live in the cities in which they work in. You're seeing, especially in California, most of their firemen, their police officers, they're living outside their cities because they can't afford to live in their city anymore. And that's just, you know, it's sad. And that that's not the community that I want to see us in. But to your point, it takes a lot of different tools, a lot of different strategies. It's not one size fits all. There's no perfect pill when it comes to providing affordable housing. I think we have to just continue to stay focused on it, try to find partners like the state. I'm working with Zach Koning on different parcels and funding sources. And it's really great. I would say this, the, the one good thing... Um, the bright spot is that local governments have never had any money to build housing. And now with the ARPA money, we're seeing that money being accessible and we're also seeing it on the state level. So now we really can make a difference because we have the financial ability to do so. We always had to rely on the private side. And now, you know, that's where the private and public partnerships can come in because maybe they say, hey, I can't make a project pencil. And we come in and say, hey, what if we helped with that funding, but you had to keep it affordable Mm -hmm. and you had to keep it strictly for workforce. So that's where we can partner and make a difference. And then there's obviously zoning can be other incentives to do this. I mean, you know, we talk about ADUs. Now, again, there isn't one perfect pill or solution that is going to make, you know, this massive difference. There's going to 
to be a lot of different solutions. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, it's kind of complex and you have to just keep working at all of them to bring them all together to make it fit the mold of how do we really make a difference in this housing crisis. Yeah. Are ADUs going to be back on the table? I know that was something that was discussed a few years ago and met challenges from some residents who thought it would, you know, affect their neighborhoods or parking, those kind of things. Uh, I am very much a fan of anything that increases density. And I've heard more conversation about ADUs lately. Do you think that that's something the city is looking at again or potentially going to revisit? Yes. And I'd like to see that. I think, you know, not every neighborhood should probably be zoned for an ADU. Let's like be clear there. There There's some areas it doesn't work. I mean, it's the reason why we have zoning, right? You want to make sure that it's compatible. You want to make sure that the infrastructure is available, those kinds of things, right? So they they don't work everywhere. But I I would say this. Now, do I think they're going to be the solution to this housing crisis? No, I don't. But what I would say is that people are living differently now. And what you see more and more are, and I'm sure you see this, let's say children that are living at home tend to, you know, stay living at home now. Because if, especially if they're going to college, and as you know, people are getting out of college and having this massive amount of debt, or they're having a hard time getting a job. And so we are seeing this younger generation really want to live at home. I've, you know, heard a lot of parents say, I would build an ADU if I could, you know, but then there's someone like me, I take care of my mom, who's really, you know, ill. And I would love to be able to have her, you know, in an ADU. Now, Love you, mom, but I don't want to live with you all the time. <laughs> um, but, you know, you're seeing things like that, like we're we're living differently. And so the, I think there's a lot of people that say, hey, I, you know, now I have to take care of my parent because they're getting older. And that would be one way in which um, might make it a lot easier. Right. And um, and it helps the system on so many different levels. So I think ADUs definitely serve a purpose and it all just depends on what that looks like and what the policy looks like. And so we'll bring it back to council and, you know, sort of hash those policies out and see what works, what doesn't work. Look at other cities, other really good models. But I do think there's a big argument to be made that I think people are living differently and they serve a purpose. Mm hmm. One of the other big effects of the housing expense and the challenges that comes with that is homelessness, which is another top of mind issue for a lot of people in Reno. We have the CARES campus, which has been operational for what, almost a year or so now, something like Mm -hmm. that. And it's had some criticism about the way that it operates there. You know, the toilets broke right away. There's a lot of talk about wraparound services that are not really in place yet But I know it's a big priority to address homelessness, ideally by getting people into homes. That's the other challenge is there doesn't seem to be a necessarily an exit plan for people that are coming into the CARES campus. Can you just talk a little bit about how you see solutions for homelessness? I know the CARES campus is kind of a unique model, this like very large scale, all in one place solution. If it, you know, eventually builds up to have all of those resources available, but then there's pushback to that of maybe it's that's creating a ghetto or maybe that's forcing everyone into one box when you need different solutions for different people. Right. So how do you see the CARES campus generally? Do you think that it is uh, addressing the needs? Is it the right type of solution uh, just generally around homelessness in Reno? How do you think we're doing and what do you think we could be doing differently? Well, I think you're right. Like first and foremost, one size doesn't fit all. That is for sure. And you have to realize what was that trauma that got someone into that place. And it's different for everyone. And that could be mental health issues. That could be addiction. That could be just one paycheck away, not even mental health or addiction, right? Um, you could be elderly on a very tight income. I, I'm, And I've seen this and I've had people reach out to me before this, you know, much older man living on a very tight fixed income. His cat got really sick and he paid for a vet bill and he could not afford to pay rent. And in 30 days, he was going to be homeless. Again, everyone has a different situation. So I think to your point, it doesn't all fit in a box. And I think that's what's so frustrating. And in order to change that, I think you're going to have to have a lot of resources and a lot of financial ability to do that, to create different types of 
um, you know, boxes. I hate to call it boxes, but I do think you have to look at each person differently because someone might be able to live out on their own if you get them housing, but someone may not because they might suffer from schizophrenia or bipolar or things like that. Right. So it's hard because you have to look at each person and say, okay, will they be able to sustain housing? Or for this person, is this better for them to be in a transitional model where they're getting extensive wraparound services for mental health? Or do you look at someone else and say, okay, they're needing to get clean. They want to be in a rehab type of, you know, situation where they can get services to get clean, right? And so someone like that, and when we see a lot of those success stories, when someone really wants to, you know, sort of get that type of treatment for drugs, we've seen a lot of success where when you make that accessible, then people have a much better chance. And I think that's what we have to provide and look at each person differently and don't look at them as like, okay, we're all going to put you over here. I Here's what I'd say about the CARES campus is that honestly, that happened so quickly because we were seeing such a desperate need during the pandemic. And literally we, we put that together. Yes, it was fast. But we also kind of looked at it like, okay, this won't happen for five years. And then the pandemic came in and it really sort of pushed us to do this as quickly as possible because Record Street was, I think we could only serve up to, you know, 300 beds. It was really nothing. And so having that extra capacity is great. Do I think it's perfect? Absolutely not. And one of the things I'm a huge advocate for mental health and drug treatment and those types of wraparound services. And one of the things that I'm doing, and I started doing it before the pandemic, is we brought in state partners and we went to go look at this model. It's called Crisis Now out of Arizona. And we're going to bring that similar model here. And it's a 24-7 mental health program where people will always have access to services. And that is important. And the reason it's important, again, we need to be proactive instead of reactive, is because we need to keep people out of our jails and our ERs for mental health. A lot of times in our ERs, they do not know how to treat behavioral health issues. They know how to treat broken bones, but they don't know how to treat behavioral health issues. And then we also use our jails as mental health hospitals. And none of that is working and it is incredibly broken. And so this model would be 24-7. So let's say an officer interacts with someone that's having a mental health crisis. Instead of taking them to the jail or the ER, they could come to this program and they can get services and they can get evaluated. They would get a case manager. And so that also would help keeping people out of those jails and ERs. But also, you know, when a police officer books someone into the jail, that's three hours. This would be a two minute warm handoff. Mm -hmm. And especially with someone in a mental health crisis, the last thing that you want to do is add more trauma. And not to mention, you know, when you're walking along the street and you see someone that's homeless, people just walk right over him or her. That is crazy. If someone was screaming on the ground, you know, holding their stomach and having an issue, we would say, what's wrong? What's wrong? And they'd say, my stomach, my stomach. We would take them to the hospital and they would probably say, oh, it's appendicitis or something like that. Mm -hmm. Let's get a medication and on you go. But think about someone that is um, suffering from, you know, like I said, schizophrenia or bipolar, you know, some sort of mental health issue. We just let them stay on the ground. And that's not okay. And so that's why I'm really hoping that this program comes to fruition. And it looks like we just got a grant from the state and the governor has given us a building over at the NAMS campus to do this living room model out of. And so I'm excited, Mm -hmm. you know, that we will have much more extensive services because in Nevada, we are like 51st on the list in mental health. And that just should not be ever should be it. And not to mention, I know, you know, I lost my brother and my sister last year and ultimately it was to mental health issues and something I never talked about because I was so ashamed and I never wanted to shame them either publicly or, you know, because my life um, is so public, but I finally am starting to talk about it because I know others, other families are living in darkness and, and not knowing what to do. And the fact that I would have to have my brother arrested just to get him mental health help is, is obscene. Mm-hmm. And so these are the things that I really, really want to change um, for our community. Yeah, I'm very glad to hear that mental health is a high priority for you. I know I I used the Talkspace deal Yay. that we had last year, so that was oh. good. I wish there was more 
publicity around it. One of the things that I noticed was I thought it was a really good resource, but I knew very, very few people who actually took advantage of it. And I think part of that is mental health stigma. Mm -hmm. Um, People feel like they don't need it or they can't benefit from it. So I was a little disappointed at the, you know, the number of people that actually took advantage of it because I do appreciate the focus on it. And I think there's also just kind of a cultural element that's a little harder to shift Mm -hmm. to get people to see mental health services in a different way and to take advantage of them in ways that make sense for the community. So, um, you know, kudos, kudos on, on making mental health such a a priority for the city, because I do think it is really important, especially it, like you said, in a state that has such challenges with mental health. Yeah, exactly. And I'm so glad that you used it. I think we had in all 5,000 users. And I always say that even if it helped one person from relapsing or coming home and beating their children or committing suicide, right? That, again, those are the proactive approaches, like, you know, the the talk space type mm-hmm. of initiatives. And I will tell you, I received some letters that just were unbelievable. And I'm so grateful that we did that. And obviously, you know, I took a lot of heat for it, but I just said, if we save one person's life, then you can't put a price on that. And I think we're going to create a partnership with Better Health and they do a much more robust um, sort of talk therapy and they have much more users and things like that, but we're pulling them in to get them involved in cities because therapy is great, but not everyone will feel comfortable going to some place for one. And also we're seeing, especially in this younger population, they're so used to using mobile that mm-hmm. they're much more, I think the statistic was 10 times more likely to use therapy if it is mobile. And you've seen, we've really seen these young people struggle with their mental health and and suicide has been so on the rise, right? So anything we can to get people access to these types of services, I think are really important. I'm really, really glad that you you used it. I think everyone should be looking at their mental health the way we do our physical health. We we have no problem going into a gym, but then when it comes to taking care of our hearts and our minds, we have a real issue and stigma with that in our country and it shouldn't be like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to ask you about the election a little bit, but before that, how are the bird scooters going? Because I know we have the line bikes and that was an issue. <laughs> yeah. I'm very pro scooter. I'm, I'm basically good. anything that gets people out of cars. I think it's cars. good for the environment. Yeah. It's good for yes. our cities. It, all kinds of reasons that we should have things other than cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the scooters have been out for a little while. Um, yeah. What's your what's your quick thoughts on on the scooters in Reno? Um, well, I'm like you, right? Like I I'm a big believer in micro mobility. I think that that's really important. And obviously I was really um, <laughs> unhappy with Lime Bike for so many reasons. But here's the thing. I always say you've got to keep trying. When you stop trying is when you fail. And are we always going to get it right? No, we're not. But if we don't try, how will we ever know? We won't know. I'm glad to see that, you know, we're working and doing a, another initiative. But there are times I see, you know, I'm, I'm seeing these young girls jump, you know, two of them on there. And I'm like, oh, gosh, if I was your mother, <laughs> I would be pulling you over right now. and You'd be grounded. <laughs> now I'm like that cranky old mom now. <laughs> but um, I, you know, I like them. And I like that people are using them, I think, in the summer. But of course, we're always going to have challenges. People are going to leave them in places. And obviously, I get concerned about that, especially if you have people that are in wheelchairs or have disabilities, and then they're right in the middle of the sidewalk. Like, I hate seeing that. There's definitely always going to be challenges. But I also think, you know, how do we evolve as a city and using micromobility if we don't continue to keep trying? And so um, I think that that's important. And I just want everyone to be mindful of each other and also be safe and where you're helmet if you can and those kinds of things. But, you know, we'll keep trying. Like I said, yes, I'm going to fail. I'm human. There are times I'm not always going to get it right. But I, again, I think you've got to keep trying or how are we going to evolve? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Every time I hear people say, oh, Reno can't have good things. Reno can't handle the scooters. Like it's so discouraging to me when I hear people talk about our city that way. Reno is not 
especially incapable compared to other cities. These things <laughs> exist all over the place. And just the, the pessimism of like, oh, right. no, Reno can't have this thing just because of who and how we are. It's like, right. no, like, no. please not. Let's no. let's not talk yeah. about our city that way. Right. Right. A little more optimism right. than that, please. Well, it's true. And I remember with Lime Bike, uh, I, when I was at the conference, I ran into my friend, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, and I said, how do you like Lime Bike? Because I think he was one of the first cities to roll it out. And he said, oh, my gosh, we love it. It's fantastic. And, you know, he's a big proponent of cycling and micromobility and obviously infrastructure now, uh, Secretary Pete. But he loved it, had a great experience. And that's kind of like I was like, great, let's do it in Reno. And so, you know, some places it's going to work and some it might not. But I think to your point, if we're all sort of in it together and looking out for each other, we're going to have a much better chance of success. Mm hmm. I know we don't have that much longer to talk, but I want to talk to you about the election. It is an election year. It is election season. We're kind of in the thick of it right now. How do you feel about election season? So you've done it a couple times. You've been reelected. Does election season change the priorities or the dynamics or the communications? How do you feel about these election years that kind of take the focus away from the day to day and um, and change the way that we talk and think about our local politics? Yeah. I Well, that's a good question. And I would say this election season feels very, very differently to me. And I think that's because I've gone through a really tough um, couple of years, certainly personally and professionally. Um, so maybe that has something to do with it. First of all, I would say I'm a huge believer in election reform. I hate the system of I, I, I'm a big believer that everyone should get $5,000 and then you have to knock on doors. I hate the fact that you have to raise all this money. I'm not good at it. I don't like it. It's always, I mean, it's just one of those things that's like pulling teeth. I hate it, hate it, hate it um, to go out there and raise money and have fundraisers. Again, if I could change it, I would say everyone gets $5,000 and now you got to go be out in the community and meet people and tell them what you're going to do for them, right? Mm -hmm. But this this time for me feels a little bit differently. I think I have my priorities different in the sense because I've, you know, had so much loss um, the last couple of years. And and to me, politics is not the end-all be-all. If I didn't win another term, then I will be okay. I will go and advocate for mental health. Um, I will, you know, go and do those things that are still important to me. And I think you can be, that's the other thing is I think you can be very effective and you don't have to be elected. There's a lot of advocates out there that are, are getting great work done. So to me, at the end of the day, of course, I, you know, I'd be honored if I get another term. But if I don't, then, you know, you go support someone else and wish them well and keep rooting for Reno. That's what I keep saying. We got to keep rooting for Reno. I'm kind of an, an eternal optimist. Um, I've always been like that. I don't like to focus on the negative ever. I don't even try to look at people that I run against as enemies or, you know, they can be opponents, but not enemies. I think that that's just not who I am. I just, I don't like that. I don't like the negative side of politics that um, obviously that we're seeing so much of just on every level. It's not just at the local level, but every level. And, you know, that's kind of frustrating. But for me, it's a little bit different. I'm staying really focused on my mental health initiative. It's one of the most important things for me right now, affordable housing. You know, I don't have a lot of time to be focusing on the campaign side of things. And I think I've been doing this long enough that I would hope that people know a little bit about what I support and who I am. That's always hard too, because I don't think people see you as a person. They see you as maybe a brand or, you know, a mayor title. You know, sometimes that's really hard because, um, you know, that's why I stay stay off Facebook. I always say I never knew how fat, ugly and stupid I was till I got on Facebook. <laughs> anyway, I just try to stay positive And I really just, my number one job and that's not the election. My number one job right now is to really stay focused on on the community that elected me to do so. What do you think that voters should be prioritizing when they're making their decision on who to vote for? So I know, obviously, if there's main issues that you're aligned with that matter to them as well. But just in general, there's so much more than just the platform that mm -hmm. a mayoral candidate is running on. A lot of it is how you work with people and uh, how you can actually get things done. And just there's a lot of things that go into it. So for voters who are not that kind of keyed into what's happening on the day to day, uh, mm -hmm. what do you think voters should really be prioritizing when they're making that important decision? 
I think for everyone, it's different. I kind of look at it. The mayor's position is that they are, you know, and I know people won't like this, but they are the number one cheerleader for the city. And they are also the messenger on every level from the national level to the local level. And I think you have to look at them and say, is this the person that I want that represents us well? and that can work with others. I think working with others is so important now more than ever. Um, That really is, I would say, number one, are they a consensus builder? Can they get along with others? But also, can they also take a hard stance when they need to? And that's not all the time. I think for the most part, mayors have to be very good at communication, and they have to be able to build really good relationships, and especially with the way that our government structure is at the local level, a lot of people don't realize this, but the the mayor does not have executive power. The mayor has is one vote like everyone else on the council. Mm-hmm. And most people also think that I run the city. A lot of people don't realize that we are a strong city manager form of government. And so the mayor really doesn't have any power other than emergency power. So let's say if we, you know, have an emergency, then we do have the power to declare, you know, an emergency disaster and those kinds of things. But other than that, to get something done, you have to get your four votes. You have to get a consensus with your council. And if you can't do that, you cannot pass anything. You can't get anything done. And so I think that's really important um, when you look at that position, is your mayor able to get along with others? Is your mayor able to get along with the community? How does your mayor represent you? And like I said, on that national level, on that local level, one of the things I've tried to work really hard on, and it's just a different style. And I think generation, Mayor Bob, you know, he didn't focus much on the national level. And I've tried to focus on the national level because it's opened a lot of doors for Reno to help us get lots of federal grants and to be at the table whenever uh, we need something in our city. And so that's why I've really focused on being at the conference of mayors. And I am the vice president right now, which, you know, helps us a lot. We will have a lot of mayors, obviously, across the country coming to Reno, but also people from the White House that we will work with day in and day out that we can have access to so that I can be a great representative for our city, but also get something that if we should need it, that we have that voice on the federal level as well. And so Mm -hmm. working with all your partners, I think is really important, you know, as your job as mayor. And again, how do they get along with everyone? Because really, it's about building those relationships. And then being able to pick up the phone when you need something or, you know, our city, especially like with infrastructure or grants that are out there, those types of initiatives, because it is the squeaky wheel that gets the grease. Mm hmm. Uh, I know that you have to go in a couple minutes. Do you have like five more minutes? Is that okay? Yes, we're going to do five more minutes, Connor. <laughs> okay, deal. Uh, well, I know this is not a local election issue, but I expect it to be a fairly prominent political issue. And you mentioned electoral reform. I would be remiss not to ask you your thoughts on the ballot initiative that's probably going to be on the- rank choice. Uh, the rank choice. Yes, yeah. because I'm a huge, I'll tell you now, I'm a huge advocate for it. I think so that- So am I. Um, being a, a nonpartisan mayor, you don't have the top five ranked choice, but you do have an open primary. Exactly. Um, so yeah, tell me a little bit about why you support the ranked choice. I do, because I just think it's it's much more of a fair system. I do. I followed a little bit in New York when um, they used it, and I'm a big believer in it. I, I absolutely support it. I think it would be much more equal system. You know, I liked what they did in New York. Again, that's where I think you see a lot of partisan politics for me, you know, I'm a supporter of people, not parties. So it's pretty, pretty easy for me. But you're right. I think a lot of people are um, getting <laughs> riled up a little bit mm-hmm. over it. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that you're on uh, on board with that, because it's one of my most important issues for this year. Oh, good. Good. Love it. What else do you want people to know? If you, you know, you have just a couple minutes left, what else do you want people to know about you or the city or being mayor? You know, um, People don't always get to hear directly from you. And I love that because I think people always read about just headlines and there's Mm -hmm. so much more that is really happening beside headlines. I mean, one of the things is really that's been um, a big focus for me. And when I ran eight years ago, I when I knocked on doors, I said, what do you want to see in your city? A lot of people said we want to see downtown cleaned up. And, you know, they referenced the King's Inn. That was like number one. And now we never talk about the King's Inn. Right. And so. It's things like that. I really want to focus on a very safe downtown, a vibrant downtown, a great place for visitors. One of the things for me, it's really important too. And I would say, you know, and I hate to 
say, you know, one, two, and three, but like top priority two is the Truckee River. It's our drinking water. And I want people to enjoy the Truckee River like I did as a little girl. We just brought in river rangers. And I'm hoping to work with the county and Sparks to bring in more river rangers so that people are not sleeping along the river because it's very, very dangerous, first of all, for people to sleep along the river. If we had a fire or a flood, you know, it could potentially kill a lot of people if they're sleeping along the river. But I also want it to be clean and safe and a great place for recreation. And so I want to work on putting something together on the federal level that also, like we do with Lake Tahoe. Honestly, the Truckee River is... Such an asset that we do not put enough resources into at all. And I think we have to preserve it and we have to continue to expand on, you know, what that looks like. And I think, you know, putting in great pathways for people to walk and bike and really enjoy it. So for me, that's also been a big priority. And I'm, I'm excited that we just brought the river rangers on board. And I just got a great text message saying, hey, it was just along the river. And it was great. It was the first time I could actually ride across, you know, the whole entire river. And, and so that's great to hear. But I want people to know that I'm really dedicated to that initiative as well. And I'm a little frustrated, not enough elected officials in our area are saying this has got to be a priority. You know, I just haven't quite gotten the support that I'd like to see, but I'm, you know, still bringing everyone in. And I think now more than ever, we are going to get much more support for it because I've really been pushing the last few years. (laughs) I kind of feel like a broken record, but it's something we don't ever talk about. But I want people to know that's also another huge mission of mine is to continue to make that river safe and sustainable. Excellent. I'm so glad to hear that. I live right by the river and it is, I agree, one of the most valuable assets we have in this city. I'm doing an episode this season with One Truckee River all about the Truckee and how important it is to us and some of the things that they're working on. So glad to hear that that's a huge priority for you too. Mayor Shibi, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was really, really good to chat with you. I'm sad that we don't have more time because I have a I whole, I have a I whole list of questions, but I'm glad <laughs> well, that we got we'll to cover a lot of stuff. We'll do it again next time. Let's Absolutely, yeah. Come back, come back anytime. Absolutely. Thank you so much for, for taking the time today. I really, really appreciate You're so it. You're welcome. And I really appreciate you taking the time with me. And uh, next time we'll learn the on off button over here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get it. We'll get it together. But no, yeah. thank you. Connor. We'll I really it appreciate it. And I love outlets like this for our community to be more engaged because obviously television is a very fast medium. Mm-hmm. And then I also think quite honestly, you know, I I'll read a lot of journalism that I think is slanted. And so I love these more personal ways in which you can communicate with our community and, and also giving that outlet to our citizens. So thank you Mm -hmm. so much for, you know, doing this. I think, I think it's important work. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm doing my best. Good, good. I love it. Listeners. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this week's episode of Renoites. And special thanks to my guest this week, Mayor Hillary Sheevey. Fantastic to have her on the show. I wish we would have had a little more time. There's so many things to talk about, and an hour just flies by. But I really appreciate Mayor Sheevey taking the time to come on the show and do this kind of long-form interview, which we don't always have the opportunity to hear from our elected officials in that way so often. So really great to get to have a conversation with her, and I hope that you took away a lot from it as well. If you enjoyed this episode or any other, please do me a favor and spread the word. This podcast has been going for a little bit over a year now, and I have continued to gain new listeners, to introduce myself to people here in Reno, to share a lot of conversations, but there's still so many people in Reno who listen to podcasts and have never even heard of this show. If this is your first time listening, welcome. Share it with a friend to let people know that this show exists, and I really appreciate your help. Word of mouth means everything for a small independent project like this. Thank you so much for listening. See you all next week.